All right, again, welcome. Glad you're here to worship with us this morning. I have the distinct privilege uh, of introducing our speaker. So uh, for those of you that have maybe not been tracking with us through the fall, uh, one of our pastors, Russ, has been on sabbatical since the beginning of September, and we'll uh, continue on sabbatical through November. And so one of the cool things we've been able to do is uh, bring in some different people to teach into our community over the past few uh, weeks, and we'll continue that trend through November. Some of those folks have been inside. So Meredith McKay spoke last week. She's uh, been a part of New Community for uh, multiple years, did a phenomenal job. This morning, we get to bring somebody from the outside in, which is always kind of fun. This individual, uh, for me, has been a close friend for... Um, Let's see, I got to do some math. Uh, about 12 years, maybe 13 years now. Uh, and he's one of those people that uh, is, um, uh, how would I say it? He's been an individual for me that uh, you guys think I'm going to say a joke right now, but this is actually very serious. <laughs> he has been an individual for me that has been a lifeboat for my faith in a lot of ways. And so you have, sometimes you have those people uh, when you're questioning, when you're wondering, when you're wrestling with things, and then there's that individual that continues to come in and speak encouragement, uh, maybe even to speak steadiness, but also to challenge you to wrestle, uh, to challenge you to rethink, to challenge you to really pursue faith in an active way. And this individual has been that person in my life. Uh, been in Spokane now for 20 years. He'll give you a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of his story there. Been a teacher at uh, Whitworth. For, uh, in the theology department since then, and uh, very active with Young Life, an incredible, incredible man of faith. Let's welcome up Kent McDonald. Yeah, yeah. I tend to move around a lot, so I'm going to stay down here so I don't fall, because I feel like the older I'm getting, I have the potential. So uh, uh, it's good to be here this morning. Thank you, Kevin. I was thinking about, we've uh, known each other for a long time, and uh, Kevin, uh, came on a little board when I first, we, we lived in Africa for a lot of years before we moved to Spokane. From 94 to 2000, we lived in Kenya doing some uh, youth work. And uh, so Kevin joined a board when I came here to Spokane and he went to South Africa with me. We were working with the age, AIDS epidemic in South Africa in the early 2000s, bringing antiretroviral drugs to some, uh, so uh, to South Africa, and so Kevin joined the board, and we got to travel there. So I got to show you some pictures. So here, uh, here's Kev. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about that there. But here's Kevin and I on this. We, uh, that's Leopard Rock out in this valley, uh, out out in this area of South Africa. We were at that was awesome. Here's another picture here. Um, there's we had this hospital we went to with children that were finally finding hope through the the midst of AIDS, which was just an incredible moving experience for us. Uh, then we had this privilege of uh, going to this metal gym that somebody had created to do some youth outreach. And uh, I think it was like 120 degrees outside. And then Kevin got the chance to speak. And you won't see this very well. Go to this next slide. Oh, yeah, you can. So Kevin just gets up to speak. We had hair back then, by the way, Kevin. Um, Kevin gets up to speak, and already one whole shoulder is sweating, okay? By the time he was done speaking, he literally, this was worse than hot yoga, which I do do. Um, it was the hottest day of our lives. And I just, I remember when he got done, I, I fell over laughing. I didn't get a picture because 
he looked like he had jumped in a pool, literally. Okay, so I think this might have inspired uh, Kevin to actually start doing CrossFit. But anyway, <laughs> hey, uh, do something with me, will you? Will you stand up for a minute? And um, I want you to put your left hand here, and I, I want you to, here's the action I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you go like this. I'm going to have you go like this. Have you kiss your fingers, and then I want you to bend down, just touch the ground. Let's try that again. Left hand here, lift it up, kiss your fingers, touch the ground. This is, that's good. Uh, I'll get back to that later. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm teaching country line dancing or something. Uh, if you have your Bibles, but this will be up here uh, on the screen as well. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4, a very popular section of Scripture. I know you've been doing a series in Mark. It's the parable of the sower. And uh, let me read this, and then we can uh, jump in. Uh, Jesus, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. And the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow seeds. And as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Uh, next. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parable. Uh, Jesus was hanging out and and even going to these parties, big parties, um, with a bunch of the wrong sorts of people, as you've known, as you've read Mark. And the religious establishment kind of went off on him uh, because he was eating with, quote, tax collectors and drunkards and prostitutes and uh, sinners, and they were having uh, a problem. And even though Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick, I have come not for the righteous, but for sinners, which kind of ticked off the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Uh, they were angry because the crowds loved Jesus. I mean, he, he, Jesus was the people's choice. The poor, the oppressed, the harassed, the outcasts, uh, those of the wrong race, those of the wrong gender. Back in the day, it was women. The fact that Jesus loved and hung out with women, and it was an amazing, radical inclusion. So people are following him around, and we find Jesus by this lake with this huge crowd surrounding him. And it says in verse 2 earlier that it says, he taught them many things by parables. Now, in fact, when we stop, well, first we ask, what is a parable? Um, And I'll just get to it quickly. It's a unique literary genre or kind of form of rhetoric that the the rabbis used a lot. It wasn't just Jesus. And it was a a common story using just very common cultural images and pictures 
uh, of the day to tell a truth about the kingdom of God or a truth about what God was like. It's a little story. Most of Jesus' teaching was in this genre of parables. Parables um, were, were to Jesus like jokes were a, to a comedian. It was his thing. And so he tells a parable. And you can imagine the disciples' confusion because they come to him with some of the others, which have been some of the crowd there, and they ask Jesus about the parable. I mean, you can see why, Jesus, don't you use a more obvious approach? Like, for God's sake, you know, get rid of the rocks, pull up the weeds, you know, become good dirt so things can grow. Say something like that. But there's something about Jesus and stories. Uh, they kind of, he hid them in stories. Um, and we still do it. Like if you're, I, I don't know if there's any kids here in the room, but, or high school kids, but you can remember back. Uh, your parents do this to you, or if you're a parent, you do this all the time. Um, I remember, I was, I think, a freshman in high school, and my friend, a friend of mine, John Havens, was throwing a party on a Friday night. And my dad found out that I, well, that I wanted to go. And so he inquired of me, hey, son, uh, you're going to this party. Basically, he wanted to know, will they be drinking there? And uh, I was, Dad, you know, Greg's going up. And he goes, hey, hey, when I was a kid, you know, there was this kid named Robert. And uh, there was this party. And, uh, you know, he was a good Christian kid. And he wanted to go. But his dad, who was a pastor, didn't let him. And, uh, but Robert went anyway, snuck out and went. And sure enough, someone spiked the punch and his witness was, you know, he told me this story. In fact, that I still remember it bugs me. Uh, and, and then he says, you know who Robert was? I go, no. He goes, that was me, son. I go, okay, dad, I guess I'm not going, you know, uh, we do this all the time. Okay. That's a bad example. I mean, I'm not saying that my dad and Jesus were on the same level, but, um, the fact that I remember it, there's something about stories. We, we do remember them, right? You know, so when Jesus said, a farmer went out to sow seeds, everybody could relate. I mean, this was Palestine. It was arid. It was dry. This was an agrarian society of, you know, subsistence farmers and maybe those who worked some sort of a little trade. They were being oppressed by Roman occupation, taxed, cheated by tax collectors. Earlier in Matthew 2, Jesus called one of those tax collectors and had a huge party at his house, Levi, at his house. And they were being cheated to, with taxes to propagate Rome's war machine and all the infrastructure and roads and aqueducts, and the people were really poor, really poor. This is what I love about Jesus. He, he isn't captured by a bunch of esoteric, theological, crazy, big words that only the sophisticated can understand. You know, it was grassroots. It was real life. It was understood by, it was understood by anyone who he says who has ears to hear. Which, by the way, this verse 9, to him who has ears to hear, I mean, that's like a parable in itself, right? I'm sure the disciples are like, what could he mean by that? What do you mean, him who has ears to hear? And I, I think Jesus is saying 
in this little parable of one line, don't just listen with your ears. Listen with your heart. Don't, don't just hear my words. Hear my, my deeper meaning. Don't just listen for the literal meaning you know, that's accessible to your rational mind. But invest yourself. Give yourself a personal investment, a sincere effort. Use your imagination. There's something deeper I am trying to say to you. I mean, this is what Jesus did with Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees who was a member of the ruling council who came to Jesus at night. Remember, Jesus talked to him and said, unless Nicodemus, you get, become born again. Or the woman at the well when Jesus said, hey, if you only knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. <laughs> and these are all these small little parables. I mean, he's not talking about literal physical birth. He's not talking about a, a, a bucket of water by a well. Jesus was talking about something much deeper. And so the disciples, after this parable, inquire. And some of the others in the crowd wanted to know what Jesus meant. Okay, yeah, we got some seeds. Okay, some fell on a path, gave birds. You know, some fell on rocks and then sprouted, but the sun killed it, you know. And then we got thorns and they grew up and choked it out. And then good dirt produces a crop. Duh. What are you getting at? And look at Jesus' response to them, verse 10 through 12. When he was alone, the 12 and the others, so there would have been some from the crowd, gathered around him and asked about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. That that's kind of bugs me a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a struggle because it almost sounds as if Jesus is trying to hide the truth and actually stop up the ears of some people. But this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. And uh, where God is, uh, and Isaiah, I mean, Jesus actually came in the line of Isaiah, the prophet. And in this quote of Isaiah chapter 6, God is telling Isaiah to not be too overly optimistic about um, people's response to his prophetic message. <laughs> and so Jesus, I think, is quoting Isaiah to describe two groups of people. The insiders and the outsiders. The insiders, the crowds who followed Jesus, and the disciples who actually came from the crowd, they really wanted to know. The disciples and the others really wanted to know. Those were the insiders. And then there were the outsiders. Those who had their minds made up. Who were threatened by potential of losing all the power they had gained, their way of life, their position. And, and these would have been the religious leaders of the empire, right? Uh, and, and Rome, who had their minds made up on who this 
Jesus was. Jesus, you've probably heard this phrase before, Jesus brought um, what we call an upside-down kingdom. Um, Those who were the outsiders to the world were the insiders to God. In fact, Jesus chose 12 outsiders. So I don't think Jesus is stopping up the ears of people like God's got something. I'm just choosing like some weird Calvinist predestination thing. I'm just choosing some who aren't going to hear. No, no, no. I think Jesus is saying I'm speaking in stories and parables because maybe a few more will hear it if I speak it through a story. You can imagine those who walked away from the parable. This is what's so cool about stories, because you walk away and you go, what do you think he was meant by the bird thing? I don't know, is, he saying, is he saying that I got rocks in my dirt? Is that what he's saying? What's, what is Jesus with the, who the, who the birds that come down? Like, this, what, is, what, you know, what do you mean he who has ears? Are, are we not hearing? You know, they're walking away still talking about the story. The obvious question in this parable that Jesus told is to ask this. What kind of dirt am I? And so Jesus explains this parable uh, and to his disciples and the others. Verse 13, 14. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Well, Remember, parables tell us something about God. So, who do you think the farmer represents? God. But it would also represent a little bit of us. Because Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, that we are supposed to be imitators of this God. And then Jesus goes on and describes these three types of dirt. Here's the first one. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Satan comes and snatches it away. Seed that falls on a hard path. Now, we don't have time to unpack, you know, this idea of the demonic or Satan or whatever. Um, Is there an actual Satan, a a being that is out to get us? Is there a guy in red pajamas who's trying, sends out his little minions like birds, you know? Um, But I I, I do, we we have to say this, right? There is an evil. Um, And whether it's the Satan or even alcohol or drugs. I mean, we even say things, well, we all got our demons, right? Or the new atheists. Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Netflix, TikTok, the lust for money. I don't, but there's a power that can take us if we're not careful. I worked a lot of years with Young Life, still do. Kevin and I met each other through Young Life. And uh, 
you know, it's going through some stuff even right now. Uh, but we, I can tell you how many, I can tell you how many kids I've brought to camp and who've had an amazing experience. You know this, church camps, young life camps, you know, night six where everybody's crying or whatever. And then they come to know Jesus. They stand up. They say, I believe. And then two weeks later, they're like flipping you off and saying, I don't believe this stuff anymore. I'm done. It's like a bird swoops down and takes this little seed. And uh, I still pray for those kids. Still meet with a few of them. And then Jesus describes another type of dirt. Verse 16. Other seed sown in rocky places. They hear the word and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I mean, Jesus is saying that some believe for a while, but if it gets tough, or maybe what they were told about God, all of a sudden in their life, it begins, they begin to realize it doesn't line up with my reality. The real questions that my life is bringing up around from things like healing, like who... I remember freaking out about what, who are these people who claim to get healed? Because I'm not seeing that happen. Seems like most of my friends still die of cancer. And I began to have the reality of what I was told about God. Didn't line up with what I was experiencing in my life or issues around poverty, the Ukraine, tragedy, the idea that God is good, this idea that God is good or, or that or God's in control. I, I remember a, a, a kid we, we were working with, his family, uh, his mom died tragically in a car wreck. And so a few of us on the, the pastoral team, myself, we went to his family, his dad, his sister, and it was one of those moments where you're talking and trying to understand why this tragedy would have happened. And I said one of those things. We have these weird Christian phrases. I said one of these weird ones that I, won't, I don't say anymore. I remember I was trying to say at the end of this prayer time with their family, like, hey, the one thing we can still hang on to, I'm looking at this family, is that somehow, and I use the phrase, that somehow God is still good. I mean, I was, I was desperate, sort of, to try to say something. You know, we, we, we get panicked. And I said, get the, we have to still trust that God is good, and that somehow he still is in control. And this kid, he was like 16 years old, he looks at me and he goes, yeah, well, if God's in control, he's doing a shitty job. And it hit me. Like, I don't know, that, that phrase is a hard one. I mean, that's when the reality of what I was told about God and the reality of my life seemed to collide. And, uh, I mean, research right now, this is the rocky ground where it sprouts for a while, but the roots don't go deep. It dries up and dies. 
Right now, we know research over the last 15 years is telling us that 50% of high school kids in evangelical churches, and this would include Young Life and everything else, walk away from their faith. These are kids that are Christian kids that are leading your like middle school ministries. They're your discipleship kids. And I see them at Whitworth. 50% walk away from their faith after their first year at college. 50%. That's not a joke. Some would say it's, it's more. And this foundation, the Barna Foundation, discovered uh, this. And about 15 years ago, there was a... Uh, He's actually the director for the study of religion and, and, and society in Notre Dame, at Notre Dame. His name is Christian Smith. And he wrote a book and did a study. And he began to see that we began to see this happening because he looked at the, the effects of a church, probably starting about in the 1980s, where the church became sort of a consumer church. He called it a, like a consumer church phenomenon, uh, where the church began to kind of just market itself. You know, uh, and he saw the church subtly move to more what, what we would call an, an entertainment model of church, where we could attract people to almost our church theater, consume it like a product. I mean, we even say this. We move to a new place and we say, I'm going church shopping. Um, and he did this research and he discovered that the average teenager upon graduation holds a form of Christianity that he called moralistic therapeutic deism. MTD. Moralistic is this idea that kids walk out of churches, evangelical churches, with this idea, yeah, we should be good. Uh, why, why I go to churches to be a good moral person. Uh, not born-again followers of Jesus Christ, just, you know, good people. Therapeutic that the goal of this religion is to provide therapeutic benefits to its adherents. I mean, not really to worship or adore or obey the living God. God wants us just to feel good about ourselves and have kind of high self-esteem. Deism, God exists and created the world, but then kind of just leaves it alone until we need him to fix a problem, like, oh, I got a test, or my boyfriend broke up with me. And this term has kind of filtered into youth ministry, and we've all been studying the effects of this. And he would say that the church kind of has watered down maybe its teaching, its discipleship, the spiritual practices, and in its place created a kind of a feel-good God. So young people leave high school, go to college, and they realize the problems of this world are too big for the shallow roots of what they heard about God and their theology, so they walk away. Believe me, I see this at Whitworth. My gift right now is to help kids not to walk away and to give them a bigger picture of who God really is. If you want more on this, there's a great book that came out some years back called You Lost Me, study by Barna, looking at the key questions that this generation's asking as to why they're walking away. It's called, You Lost Me. Third kind of dirt, thorns. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, 
But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the Word, making it unfruitful. They hear the Word, but something comes in. People in this dirt can never quite get the world put into perspective. Maybe they're obsessed with money. It rules their life. Pleasures dominate the world. Sex to fine wine. I, 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 and, and, and what are the worries? It has to be about loss. The loss of what they feel is their security or, or their worth. All the stuff that defines them. The idea, I don't know, that he who dies with the most toys wins. Are you serious? Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people in churches in Spokane who kind of live in this category. The conversations even with students that we were through come and say things like, oh, I don't know. God just doesn't have that much meaning to me. I, I, I just don't feel like I ever hear his voice. I don't feel like I feel like he's doing anything. I don't feel like I ever see him move. I, I can't. I, I, he doesn't speak to me. And I, I want to say to them, <laughs> I don't say this, but I want to say to them, like, when was the last time you ever put yourself in a position where God had to do anything? Because you're so busy relying on your security, the comforts of your life. But, uh, that's that's kind of mean. I don't say that, but I, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm thinking in my mind. Because um, we're called to walk by faith. But so many people are walking by the 401ks and their money, their possessions. Okay, that's enough of that. Here's the good dirt. Other seed, like seeds sown in good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Uh, they, they are the ones that hear, hear the, the word and they accept it somehow. It, I, I look at this, I think of this 30, 60, 100, like is Jesus kind of promoting some kind of a kingdom of God, Amway, essential oils, you know, uh, sort of, you know, <laughs> pyramid scheme or something here? Like if that's so, I'm going for the 100. Uh, but but so, sowing seeds is, is a challenge. It, it's a challenge for the church right now. Because we need a big return right now, especially after the two, last two years. Because church planting, the rules of church planting are this. Once you start a church and once you get a hundred, if you get a hundred people coming, then you can start to pay your pastor full time on average. So we got to really be serious about where we sow seeds. We've got to pay our pastor. But church Planting and seed sowing are a challenge. Because we want to determine where the good dirt is and just put seeds there. <laughs> we're going to put some seeds there. Um, we've got to put seeds in the right dirt into the right maybe socioeconomic dirt so we can get a big return. And it's funny if you look at where churches decide to plant churches. You know, or who churches uh, begin to ask to come to their church. 
Way to go, new community. <laughs> Look who you're planning. It's not a lot who do this. We don't have time, the church may say, to throw seeds in certain places because it's not efficient. We live in the most efficient society on earth. I mean, everything we do is fast, you know, from fast food, Minute Mart, speed dating, Amazon Prime, Jiffy, peanut, I don't know, taco time, high-speed internet, QuickBooks, 40 days purpose, lose 10 pounds in one week, you know, everything is boom. If we have to wait, we're out. If it doesn't work now, we're moving on. I just, why don't we just get some miracle grow? Good dirt, good dirt takes a little time. Miracle grow does not produce deep roots. Let me close. From 1993, 94, uh, 2000 to 2000, my family moved to Kenya from Lake Oswego, Oregon to uh, start Young Life on the continent of Africa. And um, so we moved there, and um, I did some ministry uh, with my friend Eliud Ikete out in Maasai land in a little area called Olesheber. There's a little picture here of us back in the day. There's my three daughters. We were the whitest people on earth. It was just amazing. Um, (laughs) And we were just in the middle of a whole new world. Um, And I would often go out and stay in this little village in a dung hut with my friend Elliot Ecotape because we started a young life youth outreach at this local school. And uh, one early evening, I was by myself outside of this dung hut. It was getting dark, and there was a goat roasting over in the corner over here. And I saw Paulina, this old Maasai grandmother, and she had a little bag of seeds maize, and she would take one, pray, she would kiss it, and she put it in the dirt and put a little twig there and had a calabash of water and poured water on it and moved ahead, grabbed the seed. She kissed it, she placed it in the ground, poured water on it. I watched her for about an hour, one at a time, because they were poor, it was hot and dry, seeds cost money, fertilizer costs money, there's not much water, you have to know where you put the seed, put it in a place precisely where it was so you could water it every day. So when Jesus told this parable in hot, arid Palestine, people laughed. It was, that's the dumbest farmer I've ever seen. Because this just isn't a parable about dirt. It's also a parable about an outlandish, ridiculous, foolish farmer who wastes seeds and scatters seeds in the wrong place 
I mean, he's going to go broke. This farmer's going to go broke, and he's not going to get a good yield. It's a parable about God, who is the crazy farmer, who tosses his word in the most unlikely places because he loves the most unlikely people, and somehow he's just hoping that when it falls in the rocks, one seed will find a little way through it to find some dirt and put a root down. That kind of farming actually got Jesus hung on a cross. In the early church in Corinthians, in a place called Corinth, people got into the first celebrity pastor war. These were the first celebrity pastors. Uh, Paul and Apollos. Um, people are going, we like Apollos. He's got like 100 people. He's, he's, and Paul's only got 30. And they were going, who, Paul, Apollos? And it was the first like church wars. And uh, we read about it here. It says, for one says, Paul says this. For one says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. To God, 30, 60, 100, that's not the issue. My job, our job, is to throw seeds. Water, weed, toss out rocks. It's God's job to grow it. I'm glad Denny Rasmussen, my freshman year of high school, threw some seed onto this dirt patch. And he began to rototill my life and talk to me about God in ways as a high school kid I had never heard. I threw out my faith my sophomore year in college, worked really hard to be an atheist. I couldn't do it. God held on to me. I'm here. New community. Be ridiculous farmers. Never stop throwing seeds. Throw them into the rocky, weedy, hardened little mud patches all around you. Don't stop working the dirt. Watch what God does. He who has ears, let him hear.